grace and peace to all of you. I am grateful that you have joined us this evening for our another edition of Ebenezer Talks. I am delighted to have my good friend, Pastor Clinton McFarland, Senior Pastor of the Grace Baptist Church in Stockbridge, Georgia. Thank you, Doc, for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Dr. McFarland has been with us several times and preached. And so we're grateful to be on tonight talking about how we're navigating our churches and how to navigate the church through these two pandemics, this COVID-19 and this climate of racism, national climate of racism. Uh, Pastor McFarland, tell us a little bit about Grace and how it became, uh, you became senior pastor and founder. How did it come about? Well, first of all, let me thank you, Pastor, for uh, having these conversations that are keeping your people enlightened uh, as about, as it relates to uh, the things that's going on in society. So thank you, first of all, for this and having me on on this evening. Thank you. Uh, I'm pastoring Grace Baptist Church. We are in Metro Atlanta, uh, a suburb of Atlanta called Stockbridge, Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, Grace has been in existence for about five and a half years. And of course, the Lord has blessed us in a major, major way. Um, I started Grace five and a half years ago after uh, pastoring for 18 years altogether. I was at uh, uh, Mount Pleasant in Atlanta for six years, and prior to that, um, I was in Mississippi. So those together would have been 24 years, I'm sorry, and uh, Mississippi for 18 years, and at Mount Pleasant for six years, and been at Grace now. Uh, five and a half uh, years. And so God uh, placed it in my spirit to leave a thriving church, one church, two, two locations, three services. Uh, membership was about 2,500 at that time. And uh, God said, leave it and start afresh. And little did I know that he was going to bless me uh, to the level that I've been blessed. But uh, I'm happy to say that he has. He has smiled on uh, me. He smiled on Grace. And I think we have made a major impact uh, in the kingdom. That's awesome. I've heard your testimony on several occasions that you've shared with myself and some of my friends when you come up to preach for us. And your testimony is absolutely phenomenal how the Lord has used you and navigated you through various channels to get you where you are today. So we give God praise for that. Doc, tell us how how has it been pastoring through this pandemic? Well, it's been a major challenge. Uh, however, I believe that uh, creativity is birthed through challenges and uh, and we've ex we've uh, experienced that. But uh, it's been, I won't say it's been easy, it's been challenging because none of us have ever passed it through a pandemic. There's not a book out on it. Uh, normally, and you and I know we're uh, pastors who uh, are young and have been younger. And when we were younger, when we had an issue that we didn't understand how to navigate our way through it, we could call a senior pastor. Exactly. 
he could advise us and give us, uh, you know, helpful hints as it relates to working our way through it. But who do you call in a pandemic when, you know, whether you've been passed for 50 years or five years, you've never been through it. Uh, but uh, we've made it, uh, we are surviving it. It's taken a lot of work. Uh, honestly, I'm uh, more tired now than I've ever been. I'm working harder uh, than I've ever worked in almost 30 years of pastoring. Uh, it's been stressful because you're trying to figure out ways to still engage your members, to provide uh, a worship experience, but keep them engaged at the same time. And, uh, and so that's been stressful. Then the stress of dealing with technology, you never know when it's gonna work yeah. or when it's not going to work. We've had those issues as well, where uh, couldn't get the streaming uh, service working uh, or it goes halfway and cuts off. Uh, so all of it has uh, uh, been quite a challenge, but at the same time, uh, we have found some more creative ways to do it mm -hmm. uh, in the midst of this that we would not have discovered were it not for this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. We And I think regardless of the size or the location of your church or your ministry, we all have felt the pain of trying to keep our members um, involved and keep ministry going and keep them fed spiritually. Um, have you all gone back inside your church yet? No, we've not gone back for Sunday worships, uh, worship services. We're still streaming only. Uh, the way we do it is we record on Thursday night for Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have an editor uh, who edits everything after we've recorded it and uh, we run it uh, live for Sunday and that has worked very well uh, for us. Um, we've not gone back, however, I have had some services where I've uh, experimented uh, with it. I had a uh, shift revival three nights uh, where I brought in some guys and I put uh, about 50 people in the sanctuary. Uh, my sanctuary seats a thousand and they were very well spaced out. Uh, quite a few stipulations as to what they would need to do to be a part of that service. And uh, that was very successful. I met with my staff actually today and we talked about possibly doing the same thing <clears throat> for some of our Sunday services. Uh, to give uh, the people uh, a worship experience who still want to come, but uh, of course, keeping the numbers limited, but uh, we're just not even sure about that right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so the answer to the question is uh, not yet, yeah. not yet. Yeah, and with the resurgence that we see taking place, yeah. it's gonna be very hard to even make a decision um, I would want to go back. We have an out, outdoor, outside service, and it's worked extremely well for us. Uh, we even had Good Friday outside, and we brought a guy in to preach. But I want to go back in in September. But we just got to play it by ear and see what the Lord says, because we have no idea of how bad the resurgence is going to be 
Right now in Virginia, we are staying at a level key. We're not really rising like some other than 32 states are rising. I think it was like 32 that are really rising heavily. But uh, we just gotta be careful because in my opinion, on my end, in my context, my members are my main concern. I don't want anything to happen to my staff, my members, because of my negligence or because of my uh, immaturity, if you will, of wanting to hurriedly get back inside of the, of the church. And so I think all pastors have to be mindful of our congregations because we don't want to be the cause of some fatal or something tragic happening to them. Have you okay. had, yeah, go ahead, Doc. No, I was agreeing with you. Have you had a lot of pastors because I've, I've said and listened to you and gained knowledge down through the years. Have you had a lot of pastors to reach out to you for advice as to how uh, to navigate through? And what are some of the things that you would say to some pastors, regardless of the age, as to how to, you know, keep your church afloat, keep your church going financially and keep the ministry thriving to some extent and missions thriving, what would you say to, to pastors? Well, I've had uh, a lot of pastors, honestly. And one of the reasons is that I travel, as you know, extensively. And so I have a lot of guys that I seem to have influence with. And uh, so many of them have reached out to me and there are, there are a variety of ways that you can keep your people engaged. Number one, you just gotta love your people. Uh, you gotta be concerned. And the way to do it will emanate from your love. In other words, if I love you, I'll find a way to stay engaged. Uh, smaller congregations, it's a lot easier because you have uh, less members. I've actually had a pastor friend who has called every member on his role and prayed with them personally. Well, I have uh, about 2,500 uh, members. And so for me to do that uh, personally uh, is not uh, even uh, logical, but I still had uh, one of, I have about 30 uh, ministers who are part of our church and we broke the uh, roll up by uh, alphabets and we gave each of them a list. We also gave them a script as to what to say. Number one, I'm calling on behalf of my pastor, Pastor Clinton McFarland, and the Grace Baptist Church. He has asked that I would call to uh, check on you uh, in this uh, uh, coronavirus climate, such and such and such. Yeah. And so we were able to do that. That was one way. We've actually uh, had some drive-bys where we've uh, we've driven by the house to mm -hmm. check on members and just sat in the car. Uh, those are the tangible ways. Uh, as you've said, with your services outdoors, we've had three services uh, outdoors. Ironically, two of them, it rained and we had to, you know, navigate through that. Uh, Zoom has been very effective. In fact, I had maybe about 40 or 50 people on this morning from my Season Saints ministry. Mm -hmm. They get on every Wednesday at 1045, stay on about an hour and 15 minutes, and uh, they discuss things, and then they have a Sunday school lesson. 
so I jumped on that today and uh, just spoke with them and shared with them. It's a variety of things. If you got Facebook, I've done Facebook Live prayer, 6 a.m. from time to time. Uh, you know, if you got Zoom, you can do all of your Zoom meetings. Just, uh, just a variety of ways to stay engaged. We have uh, uh, a few members who have uh, actually who actually have the coronavirus right now. I give God praise that I've not had one member to die from the coronavirus, uh, and I've only and I've not even had I've had one who went into the hospital for four days. He's out recovering at the home. Everybody else, uh, you know, were able to recover at home. But uh, we've done things like, uh, uh, you know, call to see what they need. Say, well, I need some vitamin C, need some zinc, I need some vegetables, I need some fruit. Well, we go and get it. Somebody takes it to them. Uh, and then of course we feed. Matter of fact, this past Tuesday, yesterday, we fed 240 families. Uh, uh, in our food pantry. So the, the virus has presented some challenges and problems, but it has also afforded us uh, the opportunity to really be the church. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when things are comfortable and we're complacent, we're not really, you know, the church as the church ought to be most of the stuff that we do is inside of the building. Well, we've been forced out of the building now. And so everything we're doing now is occurring outside of uh, of the building. And so I think that, uh, uh, you know, we've stepped up to challenges. And I tell guys, and I'll say this, I tell guys who say, well, I don't have all of the technology that you have. Well, you have a phone. There are phone, uh, lines and calls what is it called this conference. where we do our prayer call conference yes conference phone lines you can engage your members i have a service where i can record a voicemail and send it to every member who's uh hooked up with our text alerts our calls and i'll just send a, a hour a, not an hour a minute and a half uh, message, pastor's praying for you, had you on the mind, such and such, I'll get on there and sing to them, you know, just yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah. Just to lift that day and just being creative with yeah. how we stay engaged. And it's been working really, really good. Yeah, we've been using the conference call system uh, every Wednesday for the last several weeks, just going through things, giving them updates on what's happening with the church um, and praying with them mostly, most importantly, and I think it's been working really well because it gives me an opportunity to share with them things that I may not would normally share Sunday morning being outside. And now that we're in the summer, you want to try to get them in. You don't want to rush the spirit, but you want to get them in, get them out because it's hot with them sitting outside. And so it's a lot of ways, you're absolutely right. It's a lot of ways that we as pastors can use technology and it doesn't have to be on a mega scale. You just gotta have the right people to get you hooked up and get things in line and, it, and it'll work, it'll work. It'll work. And then you gotta have the heart. Exactly. You know, you obviously have the heart for your people. I know you and I know how you feel about the Ebenezer family. And uh, you have the heart. If you have the heart, uh, then you'll find the means, the way, the wherewithal 
to stay in touch uh, uh, with your people. So that's that's most important. Yeah. To just have a heart when you love people. I love the people that I serve and I miss them and they are family. And so I just want to make sure that they are all right. Yeah. And however I can do that, I just want to do it. I think one of the biggest challenges for me has been, and I know you may not can relate because you got a much larger congregation than I have, but one of the biggest things I take pride in is being able to fellowship with my members after service. You know, it's not too many of my members that I don't touch shake hands, high five, hug, speak to in some way when we were inside. And now, you know, we have been kind of handcuffed, if you will, from being able to do that. So we've got to use other ways to stay to stay in contact. But I want to shift a little bit because when we were going through the COVID-19 and just when we thought we were nearly done, then we become involved or engrossed into a resurrecting of the racist or the racial climate. And you being in Atlanta, having uh, witnessed, or maybe not witnessed, but been a part and seeing how things have played out. How has this racism piece uh, affected you in your ministry? Um, well, let me go back because you're from Mississippi. So how much, let me, let me, let me re rewind. Growing up, were you affected by racism, being a black man, your father was a preacher, come from generation of preachers. How did that, if at all, affect you growing up before we talk about now? Well, I was affected by it, but I didn't know it until I got grown until I became a man mm -hmm. and I look back on certain things, you know? Yeah. For instance, uh, when I was up until the eighth grade, uh, up until I was in the eighth grade, um, the white folk left the school first. They had two bells. First ring was for the white folk to leave and all black folks stayed in the class. After all of the white folk were going on their buses, number one, the buses were segregated. And then the second bell would ring, all of the black folk would leave. Well, at the time, I didn't know, you know, you can be in a racist situation and you're so in it and you grew up in it until you don't even realize that it is uh, a systematic uh, racism. Mm -hmm. So looking back on it, I'm like, man, that was like really uh, racist and segregated. Uh, when we would have assemblies, all of the white people would sit up front. All of the black people would sit in the back and we didn't think anything of it as- Because it was normal. It was normal and it was not mandated that it happened, mm -hmm. but it was so ingrained into our psyche that uh, we didn't even notice it. So I've had certain incidents, of course, with the police after I became a man, uh, being stopped by the police and treated, you know, uh, harshly, uh, gun pulled on me in Mississippi, uh, at night, it's very dark. So I've had those incidents. Um, 
but you know the disheartening thing pastor is that that was 35 years ago mm-hmm. I know, and we're still know. dealing with it and we're still here we are later and we're still dealing with seemingly the same if not worse yes yeah yes. yeah yeah how and much so, how much have you have you preached any social justice or done anything in your church in these last couple of weeks a few weeks Oh, yes, yes, I have uh, been dealing with it quite a bit uh, in Bible classes on Tuesday night, as well as Sunday services. In fact, a couple of Sundays ago, Father's Day, I took that day and uh, my theme for the day was build up a black man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what I dealt with. That was the title of my sermon. Uh, And I talked about how black men in America have been beaten down. Uh, Don't care what your educational level is, don't care what your position is. We're beaten down and we are looked at in a certain way by virtue of our skin color. And these things will beat you down, your own jobs where you're highly qualified, but you never get the position. You know, the police stops you and treats you uh, inhumanely at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to start a business, you can't get the loan. We're just beaten down. Whereas white men are given chance after chance. We've got a president who has filed bankruptcy, uh, filed for bankruptcy many, many times, yeah. but yet can still get loans and become the president of the United States. Exactly. Uh, uh, Black men don't, we're not afforded uh, that privilege. And so I preached on that because we need to be built up. And I talked about how incumbent it is upon his woman, so to speak, to build him up. And uh, not that it's her responsibility, responsibility solely. Of course, it's his job, but how she can assist. And I got it from I don't know if you remember the miniseries Roots uh-huh. that uh, aired for the first time, uh, I think in 77. Yep. I never shall forget uh, the character that was called Chicken George. Uh-huh. Chicken George uh, raised roosters to fight. Uh, his master was a gambler, so he gambled away George to uh, another plantation. Well, George had a wife and a family, but yet he was able to send him off. Well, um, long story short, George went there and obviously was successful in his endeavors to the point where he was able to purchase his freedom. He came back after purchasing his freedom uh, for his wife and for his children, and he was going to stay in that area a free man, but they were still slaves. Uh, When George came back, he and Tom, his son, went into town And once they went in, George is a proud man. Tom is there. One of the white men in town called Tom the N-word and told him to come here and give me some water that was out of the water fountain that was right next to the guy. And so Tom being a slave and knew that his life could be taken, he went and did it and uh, did as they had to do it that day. So then uh, he said, now my brother is thirsty. 
And Tom said, all right, master, I'll get you some water. He said, no, I want that uh, Negro or N-word, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I want him to get it. And George said, I am not the N-word. My name is George Moore and I'm a free man. Man said, give me your papers. He looked at the papers and said, well, don't you know there's a rule in this state that if you stay here free for six weeks, you become an N-word again, threw the papers on the ground. George had fought and worked for his freedom. And now here again, he's put down and reduced to feel like nothing. He goes home and he's telling his wife about it. And he's saying, listen, if I stay here, I'm gonna become a slave again. He said, but I love you guys so much. I don't wanna leave again. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And on that clip, she took a broken man and spoke to him in such a way to build him up. And she looked at him and said, George, I'm now married to a free man and I will never live with a slave again. You go and do what you got to do and work and you'll come back and buy our freedom and such and such. And she kept looking at him and she kept saying, my beautiful man, my beautiful man. And that gave me the idea right there of how a woman can build up a broken man. And so that was the essence of my sermon. So, you know, that was my approach to dealing with uh, systemic racism, uh, social justice, but I've dealt with several things even uh, prior to that and since then. Yeah, we, we have a major problem in America and I've been talking to people, a lot of white people, I've been talking to them. And the problem is with the heart. We've got to get folks' heart to change towards and, and towards people and learning how to love people. Um, it's awesome to hear how you took that and used that to minister to the hearts of men and women because the black woman plays a major role in our lives yeah. and uh, they have a job and sometimes I wonder do they even know the, the, the power that they have I don't want to say it over us but in actuality they do have a power over mm -hmm. us to, to push and propel us to be what God has truly called us to be um, she could make you or break you exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> Um, are you finding that the time has come for us to really work with our young men, our teenage men? You have some, you have sons, you have a, a, one son, I believe, right? I do, yeah. I do, he's 22. Yeah, and so the time is really now for us as middle-aged and older men to really begin working with our young black boys, teenage boys, teaching them some of the things that you just said so that yeah. they hopefully won't have to face what many of us have faced and our forefathers faced. And if they do face it, they'll be able to navigate through it. Yes, indeed. I think that time is is now just as our fathers and uh, other men in the community and women did for us. Exactly. Uh, one of the things I want to add to that, Doc, is that uh, a black woman is the most beautiful creature that God created. I tell my church all the time, if God made anything better than a black woman, 
he kept it for himself because he said man just ain't, ain't worthy of anything better. And it's incumbent also upon us as brothers because a lot of times uh, they are beaten down too because we are broken, we break them. Yeah. So it, it has to be reciprocal. I wanted to say that uh, it has to be give and take. Yeah. Uh, many of our brothers uh, become very successful and you know, we think that we're too good almost. And I don't want to make this a controversy, but it's true. Maybe too good to even date in our race or what have you. But that black woman is special. Yeah. She is a creature that is created uh, in the most beautiful way. And we need to respect her. That's one of the things we need to teach our sons, to respect uh, his woman, respect black woman respect women in general mm -hmm. and it's incumbent upon us to teach them about the struggle and here's the good news that i think the young people are seeing this when you look at this movement that's occurring right now this movement is um propelled and perpetuated by young folks exactly they are engaged they're involved they are tired and they're just saying, in essence, we're not going to take what our parents took and whatever we have to do if we have to fight. And I don't agree with burning and looting, but I do think that sometimes that gets more attention than we shall overcome, yeah. if you know. And so they're doing what they, uh, what they have to do in order to get the message across and let the, uh, this country know that we are here, we're not going anywhere, and we're gonna keep fighting. And I think that as a church, we've got to make sure that we stay engaged because you know the Black Lives Matter movement, I think is a good movement, but it's not a church movement. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not a good movement, but we don't need them to be out front and we're in the background, you know, singing Shall We Gather at the River yeah. and uh, in the sweet by and by. We've got to stay engaged. And we do that in a variety of ways. Everybody may not be out marching. Everybody may not be out protesting. We may be teaching the importance of uh, controlling our dollars. We may be teaching build up a black man. We may be teaching, uh, I've been speaking out a lot to the white uh, uh, evangelicals because I think that racism in this country, number one, it was started by the white church. Mm -hmm. It was perpetuated slavery. Many of those who wanted us to still be in slavery were Southern Baptist uh, members. Mm -hmm. And racism in, in this country is still perpetuated by the white church. And uh, it's incumbent upon our white brothers and sisters to stand with us for what's right. Exactly. And stand up because, uh, uh, you know, the Christianity, and I have to say this, I, I had a, a lesson that I was going to teach, but the Lord said, hold back. You know, I didn't teach it. It was quite controversial. Uh, but God said, don't teach it right now. Do this in a different way. But in that lesson, uh, I was going to talk about uh, how white Christianity looks nothing like Jesus absolutely nothing uh, like Jesus. Jesus was not a hater. Jesus was not a bigot. 
Jesus was for the least, the looked overs, and the left out. Yeah. Uh, Jesus was not a racist. Jesus was not for slavery. He was for the hurting. Black lives would have mattered with Jesus. Jesus left the 99. You know, when we say black lives matter, and they won't say all lives matter, Jesus would have said, uh, listen, I left the 99 for that one that was disenfranchised. Yeah. Because I wanted him to know particularly and specifically that his life mattered. But when we look at the white church, the white Christianity, and I have to say it, it looks nothing like Jesus. Like Jesus. No, absolutely not. If Jesus came back today and and walked into some of our churches, he wouldn't even recognize what's going on. And so we've got to speak truth to power, and that's where the power is. Nowhere in the world Jesus would have supported a guy like Trump. Yeah. Nowhere in the world. Yeah. And, and to hear some of these national major televangelists, white televangelists, throw their support behind Trump after knowing and hearing and witnessing the disrespect, the derogatory statements towards um, challenged news reporters and females and countries that he felt were beneath us. That is not what Jesus stood for. Jesus stood for the least no. of these. And so it is evident that you're telling the truth, Doc, because you can see how our white evangelicals have gravitated. And then when they are called out for their bigotry and for their racism, then they want to come on social media and give us a watered down apology and try mm -hmm. to reverse it and make it, make it seem or appear as if that's not what they meant. Right, right. And, uh, you know, uh, Jesus said, it is not that which goes in a man that defiles him, but it's that which comes out of him because what comes out of his mouth is indicative of what's in his heart. Yeah. So what you said the first time is what you meant. Yeah. Uh, but you got called uh, on the carpet and you got caught and now you want to come back and, and apologize. And, and guys, they're going to have to do better uh, because their whiteness and America the way they want it to be is more important than human life. You fight for the life of the unborn, but ignore the life of those after they've been born. That's not Jesus. Yeah. And you know, it's just as much racism in the Democratic Party as it is in the Republican Party. Oh, yeah. We don't, so many times we preach from what we've been taught to support Democrat, vote Democrat. And I don't have a problem with that, but we need to lay all the cards out on the table. Racism is everywhere. It's not just in one set political party. Racism right. is, is, is all around the whole layout of our political arena. And, and we've got to deal with, you know, so many different things and address these issues as it relates to us moving forward. Well, you're right. Racism is in both parties. I mean, big time. Uh, but one of the things, that, and we've got to address those. We've got to hold them uh, accountable uh, when we give whoever we give our vote. Uh, one of the things, though, I still have to do is, is 
learn how to vote for the lesser of two evils. And a lot of times that's what we are doing. Both are evil, but which one is lesser? Yeah. Until I can get to a point uh, where we can really have a viable party or candidate. Because if I disengage the process, then automatically my vote goes to the, the most evil one. Yeah. And so uh, I would encourage everybody, even though the Democratic Party is, is racist as well, it is the lesser of the two. Of, uh, you will see more black people, uh, more people who look like you uh, at the table, you know, in the campaigns, in the cabinets, uh, which has helped some, you know. Of course, we're not getting, sometimes you have to, what you can get and keep fighting for what you want. Now, here's one of the things that we've not done well as black people. We've put people in office and we've, and we've given them no agenda. It's just like the marches and the protests. Well, we're marching. Okay, what are we marching for? What do you want? Where are your uh, end game items? Yeah, what is your action is plan the, and what is the ultimate? What is your action plan? Mm -hmm. Okay, if they say, all right, what do you want? What can you tell them? Justice? Well, what does justice look like? Yeah. So there has to be a strategy that is put together that we present the candidate. If, if, if you're going to vote Democratic, if you're anti-Trump, which I am, uh, and because of that, you're going to vote for Joe Biden, whom I'm not a big fan of, but I'm just voting against Trump. Well, if we're going to do that in droves, then there needs to be, and I don't know who's responsible for form formulating the list, or what, but where is our list that we give to Joe Biden and said, now, if you want our vote, here are the things we want. Yeah. Do you know why Trump is the way he is? It's because the evangelicals hold him accountable for the things that they have on the list. They want these conservative judges, you know, so they tolerate. They know Trump is a bigot. They know Trump is like absolutely an idiot, but they tolerate him yeah. to get those things on the list because they understand he's not our candidate. And the reason we know he's not that candidate because in the primaries, they were negative towards Trump. Lindsey Graham was negative. Yeah. Uh, Mitch McConnell, all of them were negative when it came to Trump yeah. until he became the nominee, now they say, well, we better get in lockstep with him yeah. and let's just get out of this guy what we can get out of him. And that's something we don't do. Yeah. We don't, we, if it ain't, uh, you know, I'm hearing some black folks saying, I ain't voting, I'm just not gonna vote for anybody. Well, why not at least go with the lesser of two evils with an agenda that you give to them and say, here, here are 10 things on the list and I'm expecting at least, you know, so that's just kind of the way I think. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think we've held our local and state political figures to a certain standard. You know, in the church, in the black church, they always hold the preacher, the pastor, to a certain standard. There are certain things that the congregation doesn't want to see, don't want to hear, and if you do, you try to do it 
They want you to do it in a way that is not publicized. Right. We are not holding our political, local officers, political officers, state officers accountable. We are not giving them, as you said, a plan. Long before we get to the, to the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we're not giving our local persons a plan and holding them accountable. One of the things that we are preaching now here where I am, we've got a, a young man that started a, a, a coalition. And one of the things that they're trying to do is get us as black people to become more active and to attend the local uh, board of supervisors, which you all would know as city council, meetings, be involved in those meetings, show your face, come in large numbers to let them know you're concerned about what's taking place. Um, that's where we've got to go down. We've got to get to a point where, where our congregations become more active in the process. Most definitely, and not just leading up to the election day, but even after. Even after. Uh, even with President Obama, we put President Obama in office and we just said, okay, we're all right yeah. now. We didn't even hold him accountable. No, we didn't. So literally, he did more for the LGBT community than he did for black people. Exactly. Because that community held him accountable yeah. and said, here is what we want. Yeah. And uh we didn't do that we were just so happy to have a black guy in the white house and we thought that uh, we had overcome yeah. that, uh, we didn't. And, and when you so, talk about king and his dream and i've heard preachers i've heard people say this well that was a dream to get a black president it, it had to be more to that dream than us having uh residents in a home and being the leader of the free world King's dream surely had to mean more to him and to us than just one day us having a black president. Almost, most definitely. When you look at the end of Dr. King's life, he was moving more into economics mm -hmm. because he understood that the golden rule is he who has the gold rule. That's right. And when you have no money, when you have no economy, uh, when you have no gold, G-O-L-D, then it's not much you can, you don't have much power uh, in this country. This is a capitalistic uh, society. And uh, Dr. King was moving in that economic way, pooling our resources, supporting Black-owned establishments. Uh, we, uh, you know, got to the point where once we go to uh, white establishments, we neglected our own. And that was not Dr. King's dream. Yeah. And it was not his dream just to have a black president. But his dream was equality, total equality. I want equality, not just some, but I want equality in totality. Yeah. And we don't have it yet. And thus, we fight on. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the defunding of the police or the revamping of the police department? Well, I think we have to understand the definition of defunding. Most people, when they think defunding, they think dismantling totally. 
Uh, I think what uh, many are saying as it relates to defunding, there are certain areas where you can move funds to somewhere else. For instance, uh, Rashad Brooks, who was killed here in Georgia, uh, he was asleep in his car. Uh, he was intoxicated. There should have been a group that was funded that could have gone to that situation. We've got a guy here in the car. It didn't have to be guys who are militarized to go for a guy who's asleep uh, in the car. What about uh, uh, people who are, you know, not even on, but this is your job now. Uh, this guy is asleep. Let's go see if it's a psychological problem, if it's this. Most of the time, because police officers, number one, they can be, a, you can become a police officer in a matter of weeks. That's true. Oh, and very little training. So they don't, they're not trained as it relates to de-escalation. They're trained, they come with the gun, the hand on the gun. So essentially what you're saying is I'm expecting trouble. Exactly. And if I expect trouble, then if he moves in a certain way, I gotta kill him because I expected him to be violent by virtue of the color of his skin. So I think when they're talking about the funding, for instance, police in school, come on. I mean, you know, is has it gotten to that point where you have to have armed officers, uh, you know, in schools? Now, maybe some schools it's gotten to that point, but you have to look at your local area and see um, uh, other ways to handle that. So when I think of defunding, I'm thinking of moving a certain part of the budget to other areas that might could handle some of for uh, non-violent uh, incidents, uh, incidents uh, where it's just like George Floyd. Uh, the police called on was called on him because he had a counterfeit bill. Well, could there have been another department? You knew he wasn't armed. Yeah. You looked at him. He wasn't being violent. He had a counterfeit bill. Yeah. Now the reality is. We all probably have had some counterfeit bills. We ain't making the bills. We just didn't know it, you know, uh, when we, when we, uh, you know, got the bill. Yeah. So that's what I consider when I when I look at defunding. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we we hear this talking about this Black Lives Matter and how people will combat that and say all lives matter. We've never said Black people have never said that all lives didn't matter. But all lives cannot matter if you're still not bothered and not concerned about a person who is, has a counterfeit bill, who is already on the ground, who has handcuffs on him, four officers, and one of them has his knee on his neck. A black life cannot matter to nobody when you are not bothered by that. My issue was, has been, and will always be with that moment, that were three officers standing there watching this guy put his knee on this guy's neck. 
and neither of you did anything because of your allegiance to a fraternity. Because that's what it boils down to. They have not allegiance. not not your allegiance to humanity. No, your allegiance to a fraternity. To a fraternity. It's like yeah. I'm going to support you, McFarland, because we're friends. Because we forged a friendship. So no matter what you do, good, bad, or indifferent. That's not going to change my allegiance to you. You, mm -hmm. can, you can go and kill 20 people, but because of my allegiance, because of our connection to a certain organization, we're going to remain connected. They stood there, watched yeah. this man continuously do this, and nothing was done. Another incident, the white boy that killed all of the parishioners in Bible study in Charleston. Yeah. Yeah. You take him to Burger King, feed him a meal, put on a bulletproof vest, but every black man or young man, Trayvon Martin, killed by a non-law enforcement officer. And he gets off. And he gets off. Mm -hmm. Going back to the political arena, more so than voting for a president, we need to have a voice in how these judges and the judicial system, the judicial system may need to be defunded. Well, I, I would not agree with you there. And that's why we've got to get involved in the local elections more than anything, because it's in those elections where the police chief is chosen. Yeah. Uh, where your uh, where your school board members that these are things that affect you every day. Every day, the district attorney, uh, who is the district attorney who charges these people? Yeah, um, and a good vetting, a good a good vetting system has to be implemented because, and I hate to say this, but so many of our own people, as we bring this conversation to a close. So many of our own race has been blessed with those positions. And there have been some instances where they were even changed, if you will, to go in a direction that was not the correct direction to go. And so we've got to be, be able to vet these people that we are voting for and that we are supporting and that we as pastors stand up and try to propel our congregations to support. We as pastors have to be more vigilant in our vetting of these persons. I totally agree. Yeah. I totally do agree. And we we can't just give our votes away. You know, we can't just uh, be taken for granted any longer yeah and uh we as pastors community leaders church leaders it's just incumbent upon us to stay engaged we're here we're not going anywhere uh so we've we've got to just make the best of this situation yeah and uh i want to encourage everybody keep fighting yeah. keep fighting however you choose to do it if it's uh marching march on if it's protesting protest on yeah if it's uh blackouts where we're not spending any money at this particular place uh do it if it's preaching preach if it's uh teaching whatever your way is yeah 
of speaking truth to power, yeah. then it's incumbent upon all of us. But by all means, we all must stay engaged. Must stay engaged. And we and in closing, we've got to also remember that all white people aren't bad. That's true. There are some who have no ill feelings or racial feelings towards us and they mean us no harm. And right. you gotta prayerfully allow God to lead us and direct us as we seek those persons out and be, be very mindful. Clinton McFarlane, thank you for being with us. Thank, thank you for the ministry. Thank you for being an example to so many of us, pastor, and showing us that, that you can do major ministry and remain humble and still not mind uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge. I thank you for your friendship and I can't thank wait you. to get you back up here to Ebenezer yeah. and Exmoor to preach and to do what you do best. Um, I look forward to it. Let me just say hello to all of the precious people of the Ebenezer Church. Uh, thank you for your uh, love and support of me and the ministry throughout the years. And I so uh, look forward to coming back to Exmoor, Virginia and uh, sharing with you. So we're going to have to pray this thing through so we can get back in church. There you go. And do what we do. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Doc. For, for humanity and for your commitment to the cause of Christ. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Let's have a word of prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for Clinton McFarlane. We thank you for his family, for the Grace Baptist Church. We pray that you will continue to endow him with wisdom, continue to protect his wife and his children and all of the persons that are around him. Give him, oh God, not only the desires of his heart, but give him vision and provision. Bless us as we continue to forge this friendship and all of the churches and, and races across this nation draw us together. We bind and declare and decree that COVID-19 shall have no place in Grace Baptist Church, nor in Ebenezer Baptist Church, nor in any other church. We declare and decree that we are already freed from that pandemic and that you are really now ready to touch us as a race, touch us as a nation, put your arms and shield us and protect us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless to you, my brother.